0: This man, Chris Henry, came in gunning for my job with the sermon that he gave. Did a great job last week. I was really encouraged. I hope you were really encouraged. Um, hey, a couple of things. I'm, uh, I'm uh, we have like a verging on intimate group today. It's been a few weeks since we've had that. And I really enjoy those days, to be quite honest with you. Uh, in addition, this is the first weekend. It hasn't been 100 degrees in like 18 years. Yeah. So, I mean, praise the lamb. All right. He sent, he. Let it rain, indeed, the past few days. It was raining big time, and that cooled it off, and, and everything's not as dry, and so thank the Lord. Um, <clears throat> couple of more shout-outs is that uh, the Congans are back, and yeah. And Mike, we were joking earlier that Mike uh, didn't take no days, he, no days off from Mike. He got back and jumped straight into leading us, and so I want to say thank you to him Great job today, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, hey, well, a couple of quick other... Um, no, actually, I take that back. We're going to go ahead and get started. And so, um, while well, I am sorry that you have to get me back this week. Last week, y'all were way too excited that I wasn't preaching. I was a little, <laughs> still feeling a little insecure about that, if I'm being honest. And while Chris can't be back this week, uh, he has his own life to live. Um, I do want to go ahead and step into our time in the Word. And so if you would... Um, we're going to go ahead and, and start by uh, retelling a, a recent bit of presidential history. On November 7th, 2020, President-elect Joe Biden uh, stepped toward a podium uh, in Wilmington, Delaware, to deliver his victory speech. And so even more than he could fathom at the moment, it was an election that was going to go down as one of the most controversial uh, and contested elections in U.S. history. And, and that night, he began his speech the way most presidents do. How did he likely begin his speech? Y'all, y'all know, what's your, let's, let's see, who of you know your presidential vibes? No, he didn't say, so not, not four score <laughs> and seven years ago. No, that was a quality guess. He started, like many presidents do, by saying, my fellow Americans. very common phrase that presidents start speeches with. And over the course of the next, I'd say about 20 minutes, give or take, a little bit less than that actually, he called on Democrats and Republicans to forge this new way forward after a difficult election cycle. And while there were a spectrum of different people listening to him, I want to draw your attention to two different types of people or two groups of people that were listening to him that night. On one side, probably the furthest side, there were those who fully supported uh, the new President Joe Biden. They looked at him and said, I agree with almost all of this man's ideas. I believe in this man personally. I'm so happy. And in their hearts, as they listened to him talk, they said, this is my president. They're filled with joy. Now, on the opposite side of that spectrum, uh, there was a different set of listeners. And they did not agree with a lot of the new president's views. Um, They did not believe in him personally personally. And they looked, and while listening to him speak, in their hearts they said, this is not my president. Now here's the thing. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. What I'm trying to draw our attention to more than a political idea is a very human idea. That two people, one speaker, the exact same words coming out of his mouth, but two extremely different responses to it. In one moment, one group is mourning and, and let down, and in that very same moment, listening to that very same person, another group is filled with joy and excitement. On one side, there is a full submission to the authority of this individual, and on the other side, there is a visceral rejection to the new authority of this individual. And you see, the reason I'm telling you this story is that that's really what it comes down to, the idea of authority. You see, we live in a society in an overall culture that tends to reject authority. That's our, that's our inclination. We reject authority. We don't see it as the final word to submit to. In fact, in our culture, and I promise you, a bit of your idea, the way you think and see the world, you, we, uh, the way I think and see the world, we don't see authority as the final authority to submit to, but oftentimes, rather, we see authority as right, like a, an obstacle that we have to overcome to get what we want, to go where we want to go, to accomplish what we want to accomplish. But what happens when one with the most authority is also the one with the purest heart? You may be looking at me, when has that ever happened? Um, well, today we're going to, to finish our time in the Sermon on the Mount uh, examining a powerful idea in not just this sermon, but it's in all of Matthew and it's in all of the New Testament, and that is the idea of the authority of Jesus. And so we're going to start uh, kind of digging into this by just simply offering what I think is a good summary note of kind of what we're going to talk about today, and that's this, that how we respond to Jesus' authority sets the stage with how we live the rest of our lives. Okay, how we respond to Jesus' authority sets the stage for how we live the rest of our lives. Now, um, let's go ahead and start by reading our text for the day. Uh, in the last text, and this is the very last piece of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and it's not even part of the sermon itself. It's actually kind of concluding the section of text for the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not even Jesus talking, but we're going to examine something a little bit different. And so before we read, uh, last week Chris uh, started something that, that I really liked and that I kind of want us to move toward, which is we read these couple of verses, not a lot of text today. Uh, I want to encourage you to stand uh, in reverence of God's Word, the fact that we believe that this book has this sort of authority in our lives, and we want to stand in respect to it as we read it. And so if you'd stand with me, I'd appreciate it. And we're going to go ahead and read uh, this chunk of text. You can read it along with me, or you don't have to, whichever one you want. And then I'm going to say what we've been practicing for several weeks this is the word of the Lord. And Chris tried to do it last week, too, and he completely butchered it. God bless him. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, we're going we're gonna to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say what? Okay, all right. Like I said, these are these white people phrases. I don't know, but that one's a banger, so we're going to put it in here. All right, so if you would read this with me. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome, y'all go ahead, take a seat now. Uh, Hey, before we get started today, I think it, particularly for this text, is critically important uh, for us to set the stage here with a little bit of context. And in doing that, what we're going to do is we're also going to tie up some loose ends, some stuff that we didn't quite cover during the course of the sermon series that we're going to cover today and hopefully allow it to make sense to us. So you see, this verse brings us to the close of everything in the Sermon on the Mount, And you can see it most specifically, not just from the storytelling, but in a literary way. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, from the literary point of view, there is the same language from the verses that introduced the Sermon on the Mount. That same language is being echoed here. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to the very beginning of the sermon, Matthew 5, 1 through 2, it says this, that when he, Jesus, saw the what? The crowds. He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to, what? Teach them, saying. And here we have the same language repeated in the ending section, or the concluding section of the sermon. 28, Matthew 7, 28 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the, what? Crowds were astonished at his, what? So this is Matthew's way of saying, hey, everything here is done. I started this section by saying, Jesus saw the crowds. He began to teach, and he's saying, and I'm concluding this section by saying, and the crowds heard him, and they were astonished at his teaching, okay? And so this is Matthew's way of concluding everything, but it's also his way of inviting us into Matthew's final question for us, his last question for us, which is this, how are you going to receive the speaker of these words? That's what he wants us to ask ourselves as we see the end of this sermon As we see it coming to a close, he wants us to ask ourselves, how are you going to receive the speaker of these words? Will you receive them in your heart like the follower? Kind of like what we mentioned earlier, I agree with this. I believe in this speaker. He is my Lord. Or will you respond like a dissenter? I don't agree with these ideas. I don't believe in this person. He is not my Lord. How do you know what's happening there? How do you know all that's actually going down? That seems like a lot to draw out from just a simple couple of sentences. Well, um, it's kind of, again, a literary thing. Because rather than stopping at Jesus' words, Matthew includes the the crowd's response to Jesus. And their response is actually really telling. Let's read it again. We're going to go ahead and look up at the screen. Matthew 728 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Right? The verse says that they were astonished, and that's actually really important. Right? The word astonished here, it can mean amazed or astounded or really surprised, but its root word comes from the idea of driving something away, expelling something, getting something out of here. The most literal idea that this word communicates is, is really the idea to be driven out of one's senses by sudden shock. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not a calm word. It's not a, oh, well, that was pretty good. It, it, it's an aggressive word. They weren't just surprised. They weren't amazed. I think a, a, a tonal, probably a word that better captures the tone of aggression in English might be that they were struck. They were struck by something, but then that loses the idea of surprise. And so it's actually a hard word to get across, but they were struck by something. But why? What was there? to be struck by. Why were they so struck? Well, that's where the the verse continues. In 29, it says, because he, Jesus, was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. He spoke with authority. What does that mean? You might be tempted to assume that it means he spoke with a lot of power and a lot of charisma. He was whimsical and he was poetic. And while I'm sure, and, and I like to imagine that that was Jesus. That is actually not what this is talking about. This is not about the way in which he spoke or the, the character in which he spoke. This word is actually about the content of his message. The word here isn't used about power or charisma. The word here is exousia. Don't mind that. I might probably butchered the pronunciation of that anyway. But here's the thing. It was pretty good. My man, all right, here we go. Uh, So here's what we got to. Here's what I want you to know about this. It's less to do with power, and it has more to do with the legal right to something or someone. And this authority, while found across the sermon, climaxes in two specific places that would have really struck and stuck and stuck to the listener of Jesus. Right, first. It is actually climaxing in how Jesus speaks about the Jewish law in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. We actually didn't cover this in our sermon series, but I do want to read a small section of it so that we can get a taste of what's happening. Matthew 5, 21 through 22, just the first two sections of this bigger section where he's displaying a lot of authority, says this. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Now here's the thing. I say that and your attention is probably drawn to a bunch of different stuff. You're like, am I going to hell because I'm mad? No, but what I also want to do is try to pause. We'll talk about that some other time. What I want you to actually focus on is some really important language here. Jesus uses a phrase, and he actually uses this phrase over and over and over and over again during this section. And it's this. that In the beginning, he says, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. And then after that, anyone remember what he said? But I say. See, you heard it said, but I say. And this is really powerful. It set Jesus apart from other interpreters of Scripture. In in a dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, it's a part of an absolutely incredible series of books uh, called the IVP Bible Dictionary Series. It's super nerdy. It's literally like, it's a book of section, like it's like this long. It's crazy. But really, really great if you ever want to nerd out. But speaking about this verse, the author in in the article about this particular verse uh, talks about how the scribes of Jesus' day would often interpret Scripture. They would offer an interpretation. This is what this means. But they would always appeal to a tradition of some kind. It was never self-authenticating. It was never because they said so, but because tradition said so or because Moses said so, or because this prophet said so, or because this priest said so, or because this moment, or because this whatever. But what's so powerful here is that Jesus makes no such appeals. He doesn't say, but what tradition really meant was this, or what what Moses really meant was this, or even what God really meant is this. Here he says, I say, I say. In these simple words, Jesus offers the truth. I don't, I don't offer a new interpretation of the law. I am the law giver. I don't offer you a new way to see it. I am the one who gives you the actual law. And they would have looked back and said, but isn't that Job's God? Isn't that God's job? He is Job's God. All right, let's go. Sorry. All right. Um, But isn't that God's job? And Jesus would have looked back to say, yes, it is. Yes, that is God's job. The second moment is The moment of authority, uh, or the second moment of authority that would have taken place is Christ's own judgment later on in the sermon. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he says this. Let's take a look. 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I, who? Who is I? Jesus. Will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Why is this powerful? Because in the Old Testament, one of God's ultimate functions was a function of a righteous judge, a righteous judge. And in Psalm 50, verse 6, this is not going to be on the board. It says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, righteousness, for God is the judge. In Ecclesiastes 3.17, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. That's almost exactly what's happening here. But in Ecclesiastes, it's not Jesus who does it. It's God who does it. God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. And the most powerful, considering Jesus' statement across the entire sermon, is in Isaiah 33:22. This is going to be on the board that says, for the Lord is our judge. And then look at the next section. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. You might imagine the confusion when Jesus pronounces that he will actually be the final judge. He'll be the final judge. And again, they might have looked at Jesus and asked, wait, 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 but isn't this God's job? And he would have responded, yes, it is. It is God's job. So you might be saying, I'm not going to lie, my son has taken a lot of y'all's attention, and I appreciate his cuteness, but I also want to encourage you to stick up here with me for a little while, all right? Um, So you might be saying here, wow. Jesus shows up on the scene. He makes these assertions. He places himself in a position of God's authority. He says, hey, you've heard it said in all these interpretations, but I'm the actual lawgiver you've heard it, the reality that God is judge. But I tell you now, I, I'm going to be the final judge. And all of a sudden you start thinking, what are you saying here, man? What are you saying? And that, some of that is what Matthew's doing. For the geeks in the room, you might know that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he says, you will name him Emmanuel, which means what? And then you might remember, God with us for those of you didn't hear him, Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, behold, I am, what? With you. So at the beginning it says, Emmanuel be his name because it means God with you. And then at the end, Jesus proclaims, I'm with you. So what's happening here? This is amazing. This is incredible. I'm I'm telling you, Jesus is stopping short of looking and being, hey, I'm God. But everyone. You know, like you remember the eight ball, that would be like all, all indications point to yes. <laughs> Everything that Matthew's doing across the entirety of the book and now in, across a major section of this sermon is like an eight ball when asked the question, is Jesus God? And the eight ball responding, oh, all indications point to yes. He doesn't just say it though. He shows it. He goes and he starts healing people. He starts driving demons out from people. And you might assume that upon hearing Jesus say these things, again, these are very culturally powerful ideas, that Jesus is the lawgiver, that Jesus is the one who's actually going to be the judge. In this culture, that would have been really like like triggering language that made them stand and be like, what is happening? So much so that they would have, Matthew would have written down, it struck them. The way he talked the way he had this sort of ownership over not just what he was saying, but kind of over us and over the world and even over the role and identity of God. It would have struck them to say, who is this person that walks around and talks like this but then also walks around and just heals people and also walks around and forgives sin and also walks around and raises people from the dead and also walks around and just displays authority over demons. Who is this guy? I must follow this guy. You would have not, I would not blame you if you assumed their response more than astonished was belief. But that's actually not necessarily the case. You see, this word for astonished doesn't indicate belief. In fact, it's the same word used for the unbelieving response in Jesus' hometown in Matthew 13, 58. And he did not do many miracles there in his hometown because of their unbelief. And so their astonishment doesn't indicate anything about their belief. Their their being struck actually doesn't move them necessarily to believing or following God. You see, they notice the authority of Jesus but that doesn't mean they acknowledge that authority over themselves. In fact, some religious leaders who were listening to Jesus found Jesus' speeches and his teachings to be dangerous and abrasive. They thought that this type of authority is not one I'm going to submit to, and in fact, this type of authority posed the danger to me, posed the danger to our system of belief. It posed a danger to our system of the way we live And here's the thing. Some of us know that feeling. I want you and me to be honest about you and me. We can come in here and sing a song. I can come in here and preach. We can come in here and set up. We can teach kids. We can run sound every single element of what it means to be a part of this church can externally indicate, I believe, I believe in this person, I agree with their ideas, he is my Lord. And what Jesus in this sermon is explicitly saying is that's not true. Why? Because there may be some element of his authority that like those religious leaders makes us say that's going to conflict with the way I live. That's going to conflict with the way I want to build my my identity. It conflicts with my self-authority. Maybe it conflicts with what my family says. Maybe it's what my university says. Maybe it's what the political communities that I'm a part of say. Maybe it's, it's against what my social communities say. Maybe it's those around me that say, you're fine, you're fine the way you are. You don't have to change anything. Man, dude, you're awesome. There's nothing you've ever done wrong. You do you, all the good stuff everything that you can insert in your narrative and in your story and in my narrative and in my story to make me say, no, I don't need that. I don't need him. I don't have that authority over me. But when Jesus says, but I say, and for all the moments that that fills us with frustration, for all the moments that fills us with with anger, with a hope and a desire that somehow we could change him to avoid changing us. For all those feelings, it doesn't stop his authority at the end of the day. It doesn't stop the fact that he's God. It doesn't stop the fact that he says. It doesn't stop the fact that he is our judge. He is our lawmaker. It doesn't stop that. You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to try it and then maybe to try and change it, try and change who he is. You can choose to say that it's all make-believe. And if you're really extreme, you can be like, Jesus didn't even exist. Now, I want to tell you, if you've heard some people say that, that is like such a small minority of the intellectual community. And I don't just mean Christians. I mean most atheist historians would be like, no, that's way off, dude. It's definitely existed. You can do all that, but at the end of the day, If what Jesus declares about himself is true, every single one of us will stand before the king and we can say whatever we want. We can be like, I didn't think it was true. My political community didn't say it was true. Hey, I heard and know that you said this about what it means to follow you, but I kind of was like, maybe this is right. And he can look at us and go, I'm the lawmaker. I'm the judge. I'm the final authority. They will name me Emmanuel for God is with you. And lo and behold, I am with you. If what he says is true, then that's what we are going to look at no matter what. It's like the story of the, the naval captain. Uh, there, was, there was this captain, right? This is, you know, the veracity of this story, who knows? Uh, but I know I've heard it as an illustration in a sermon before, and it hit. And so it, the story describes a captain, on the bridge of a large naval vessel, and he sees a light ahead, right? He sees a light. And that light is not just standing there, but it's on a collision course with with the boat. And so the captain, having a bit of concern, signals in on the radio, alter your course 10 degrees south. The reply came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain then signaled again, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. The reply, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman, third class. And finally, the furious captain, he's all angry, right? He's felt the feeling of authority in his life for so long, and he's lacked anyone confronting that authority, anyone saying him saying to him, no, he finally responds, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. And the reply is, alter your course 10 degrees north because I'm a lighthouse. You don't move me. You move around me. I don't respond to you. You respond to me. If you seek to come after me, it will only destroy you. But if you seek to listen to me, well, I'm the judge, I'm the lawgiver, and I will save you. <laughs> i got to gather myself a little bit. You see, friends, the reality is Jesus demands a response. There's no question about that. Rather, the question is, how will we respond? How do we respond? Despite so many uh, centuries of people being struck, people being moved by the words, the life, the stories of Jesus, there's still been a ton of people that are like, I reject that. And I reject him. But some of us, maybe even some of us in here, have reluctantly submitted to him. Like a child who finally listens when being told, sit down. But in his heart, he is still standing up. We say, fine, I'll follow. But I'm not happy about it. I'm frustrated about it. I'm agitated about it. But hear me, friend, that's not the relationship Jesus wants with you. That's not the relationship Jesus longs for with me. If it was, then the very, this wouldn't be an invitation it would be an unavoidable command. The same authority that allows Jesus to interpret the scripture and to really say, I am the source of the scripture. The same authority uh, that, that, that makes Jesus render judgment, right, could be used to force you to your knees and make you confess that he is Lord. But such a use of authority would result in you kneeling down with your legs, but still standing up with your heart. And again, that's not what Jesus desires with you. It's not what Jesus desires with me. So what does he desire then? If He doesn't desire like what we maybe have experienced where authority is a, a forceful submission of something, a legal right to something that just forcefully exerts its will onto its subjects. If that's not what Jesus is doing, then what is he doing Well, I would encourage you, rather than looking at our experience with authority, I would encourage you to look at how Jesus uses authority. In Matthew alone, Matthew by by itself, there's 18 instances of Jesus healing people. 18 instances of Jesus healing people. And many of those instances aren't like, hey, do you agree to do this? I need you to fill out a form. If you fill out the form and you agree to the right things, this is a very vis-a-vis, right? What is, it, what is, what is the, the phrase in, it's used for Alexander Hamilton and quid pro quo, right? This is a quid pro quo. You give in to my authority, I'll give you the healing. That never happens here. Jesus doesn't use his authority even to, to hold something up and say, hey, if you do this, then I'll do this. He just goes out and starts healing people. He just goes out and starts declaring there's good news. Again, because I'm the judge. I'm the lawgiver, but I've come to save you. So he just starts healing. He just starts building up. He, he sends religious leaders into an uproar because as instead of seeing sin and being like, what are you doing? He sees sin and says, you're forgiven. It sends them into a frenzy. You see, the thing is about Jesus, friend, is Jesus isn't authority the way you're used to it and the way I'm used to it. This whole sermon series, although we didn't allude to it enough, was called an upside-down kingdom. This idea that the world Jesus invites us into is so upside-down and foreign to us, and this may be nowhere more seen than in the subject of authority. We see Jesus say, that he has ultimate authority. And for so many of us, when he declares, I have ultimate authority, it fills our heart with anxiety that he wants to take something from us, that his authority means I will lose something, that his authority means what I love who will be taken away, that he wants to punish us for some reason, that he wants to teach us a lesson because we failed. But that's not his kingdom. That's our kingdom. That's what authority for you and for me oftentimes looks like. That's what being raised by parents oftentimes looks like. But that's not Jesus' authority. The declaration, I have supreme and utter authority, should not fill our heart with anxiety, but it should fill our heart with hope. It should fill our heart with hope. The judge, the lawmaker, is also our Lord. He is our king, and he's come to save us. Just the vision that Jesus gives us when he says, this is my authority, is completely upside down, so much so that the disciples look and go, what are you talking about? In Matthew 20, again, the same book, just a little bit later, Matthew 20, 25 through 28, This is actually in the Lord's Supper, like the final night before Jesus is going to be crucified. You would maybe think that on this night, he would be leaning into the idea of authority, knowing that death is on the horizon and saying, well, man, we can exert some authority here and there. Like we can kind of, you know, we can force some things. But instead, knowing that death is on the horizon, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this. Jesus called them, the disciples, over and said, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That already might be pretty powerful. It already might be like, man, you're calling me to something very different than what I know. But it's not something that you do that he doesn't do. Because just after that, he continues on just as the son of man. That's Jesus. Did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Right, the authority that Jesus invites us to experience, and therefore I want to challenge you. That Jesus, the, the, the authority that Jesus therefore calls us to utilize is one that is not marked by authority, or aggression, it's not marked by pressure. It's not marked by force, it's marked by service. It's marked by sacrifice. The same Jesus, just hours after this, would be face to face with the king that his sovereignty authorized to be in place. He would be challenged by the very kings he put into place. He would be ridiculed by the very people he came to save. He would be denied by one of the very men he spent the most time with in Peter. And yet his authority is still built on sacrifice and love and care and compassion. He starts to scream out things like, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he's resurrected, he tells Someone go get them, go get my brothers, go get the apostles and make sure to get Peter, make sure to get the one that denied me. Right? This is what's actually happening. He's not just telling you, oh yeah, I need you to make a better world, but he's offering himself and inviting us in to submit to the authority that he offers and invites us to so that we can experience what it means to, to experience authority in this upside down world. Where my failures are met with mercy Where my sins are met with forgiveness. Where when I feel hungry, when I feel thirsty, when I feel weak, in Him that's where I'm gonna be the most strong. Where when I feel dependent and I feel humble, and I feel little, and I rely on him, and I have nothing left to do but to cling to him, that will be the moment in which I feel the most strength. He invites us into this world not by saying, I demand you kneel, but by kneeling with us. In fact, maybe kneeling for us. He washes his disciples' feet like a servant. That's the authority. That's the leadership that's the, the kingship of Jesus. That's him. What up, Gus? He was looking straight at me, so I had to acknowledge him. Right, that's who he is. That's what he does. I have ultimate authority. Shouldn't fill our hearts with anxiety. Like I said, it should fill our hearts. It should fill our hearts with joy. That's the king I turn to. That's the savior I run to. That's the Messiah who's taken the fullness of my failure and has exchanged it for his victory and now brought me to the very throne room of God not to be a servant, but to be a brother, to be a friend, to be served by the king and to serve in mutual sacrifice and in mutual love what incredibly good news you and me have today that Jesus has full authority, that at the end of this book in Matthew 28, Jesus will declare all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Praise God. There's no one else that I'm celebrating. All authority has been given to them. No one, not a single, God bless all of you, but Lord knows that I'm trying to have you have all authority. God bless me. I completely resist said idea because I will make an absolute mess of things. The greatest leader on the face of the earth, the kindest heart pales in comparison to what it means for the holy, merciful, loving, compassionate son of God to declare all authority has been given to me. And for that reason, we can exalt God and praise him and celebrate because the lawgiver, the judge, our king who has come to save us, has authority. Praise God. Today, friend, I reiterate Matthew's question to us today how are you going to receive the speaker of these words? I said the very first week that this is one of the most quoted parts of the Bible in the entire world. Why? Because it wasn't just Christians that used it. People have formed governments based on the ideas found in the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi, uh, you know, he's Hindu, absolutely loved the Sermon on the Mount, quoted it a lot. Taking the message of the Sermon on the Mount and saying, This is beautiful is not hard. That's also not the call here. Matthew finishes this incredible section not by saying, Will you live this out? Will you try to make the world a more beautiful place? Will you try and be a good person? Will you try and live in a way that treats others the way you would want to be treated? His conclusion is, What are you going to do with the speaker of these words? Because only in his kingdom, only in his world, do these actually make sense. That's sort of part of the reason why you've never seen it done well. Bless you. What are you going to do with these words? What are you going to do more so with the speaker of these words? At the beginning, I, I said how we respond to Jesus. Authority sets the stage with how we live the rest of our lives. That's why, friend. That's why. Because it's much harder to be slapped and then to respond by just slapping the mess out of someone in return when you look at the king, the lawgiver, the judge, being spit on and saying, forgive them. It's so much more difficult hold ourselves in pride and esteem and, and in, in this sort of judgment when we see the judge, the lawgiver kneel down to wash the feet of those who follow him. It's infinitely harder to go out and to disobey these words when the actual speaker of these words is the sacrificial king that serves us It's so much harder And so yes, how you respond to Jesus' authority will set the stage for how you live the rest of your life. Because when we see his authority in this, again, corrupted, he's angry way, when we see it as the serving, sacrificial, loving God, right, it shapes our mind, it shapes our heart, and it changes the trajectory of our life. Today, I want to encourage you in two ways. Let these be the, I guess, application points, if you will. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm like snotting into the microphone, my bad. Two ways. First, I want to encourage you to do whatever it takes to recreate the vision you have of this Jesus. I mentioned earlier that so many of us, we hear that he has full authority and it fills with anxiety because it means he's going to take something. It means he wants to punish us. It means he wants to teach us a harsh lesson. And that's not here. I don't see that here. What is it going to take for us to have a, a renewed vision of who this Jesus is? Let me be very honest with you. It's going to, it's going to be at least in part you confronting some of your own beliefs. It's going to be, in part, you confronting some of your own history. It's going to be, in part, you confronting some of what you define as good. It's going to be, in part, you evaluating how your heart responds to just anyone saying, hey, you need to do this, not you should do this, not can you do this, but you're going to do this. Some of us have felt a lot of pain when it comes to that. We felt a lot of harshness. We felt a lot of brokenness. We felt the weight of sin through someone else and how they've treated us in positions of authority. What is it going to take to re-kind of experience that, to rebuild a vision of authority in Jesus where it's kind of, you know, sacrificial love and mercy and kindness? What is that going to take? Only you know that. It's probably going to take some counseling, some repentance, I know that. Um, but man, I, I want nothing more than for that to be the case. And the only other thing I would mention as we close up is that you are, in, you are subject to the authority of something right now. Earlier I mentioned that, man, it, is this going to go against like, the political group that I'm a part of, my family, the social group that I'm a part of, my job, my X, Y, and Z. You're in authority to something. Something tells you this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Um, I want to challenge you to try and find and confront again. also what is that for you and I'm not saying it's you. I'm saying it's all of us because all of us hear these words. All of us hear this declaration from Jesus and it doesn't sit right with some of us. In fact, it doesn't sit right in some way for all of us. That, that's all of us. It takes the work of, of like them being like, man, this has struck me in some way. That, that being struck isn't automatically leading to belief. What is the main resistor? What is the main dissenter to belief? What is the main dissenter to following? What am I submitting my life to in a way that tells me I can't go there yet? And like the rich young ruler who says, what do I need to do to be saved? We walk away sad knowing that I have been struck by your words and your authority. I have been struck by you, but something in me dissents and and renders me unable to respond to it well. Right, we have to find that in us as well. And so with that, I wanna pray. I wanna finish our time here. Um and like we've done for the past several weeks, I want to give you some time uh to just seek the Lord, uh to experience him. And so rather than me explaining him, the invitation is not to come and, and visit him through proxy of Josh talking, but through the work of Jesus, we're invited to engage with God right here personally. And so I want to take some time to allow you to do that. Um we're gonna take a couple minutes. You can do it however you want to. I'm going to be right here in this corner with my my hands held up. That's like my thing. Um, And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit of God, who I believe is here right now. Uh, I I, want to encourage you to ask him to reveal the authorities of your life. Those that are causing dissension, that are saying, hey, I can't follow, at least not here. And then I want you to ask him to just to just give you a beautiful vision of Jesus, an overwhelming, powerfully beautiful vision of who this God is, how he describes himself. And so I want to invite you into that now, and then I'll come up and just say a quick prayer to, to finish us finish up.